Welcome to All New, the show where we explore emerging social innovations and chat with social innovators. I'm your host, Daniel Weinsberg. Way back when, in late 2019, the stock market reached an all-time high, but on the ground, disparities seemed more pronounced than they had ever been, at least in my short life. As the current brand of capitalism has continued to produce incredible progress, it has also served to perpetuate incredible polarities. This quote from billionaire hedge fund manager and best-selling author Ray Dalio seems to sum up the current state of our systemic challenges in a most accessible manner. He says, Most capitalists don't know how to divide the economic pie well, and most socialists don't know how to grow it well. Yet we are now at a juncture where either A, people of different ideological inclinations will work together to skillfully re-engineer the system so that the pie is both divided and grown well, or B, we will have great conflict and some form of revolution that will hurt most everyone and will shrink the pie. Sobering words. So why is it that after so much economic growth, globally, nationally, and locally, our systems are so fragile? Shouldn't this growth have produced stronger, more sustainable systems? And as we race into the greater recession or depression and the rules and tools we have taken as constant disintegrate, we're presented with an amazing opportunity. Perhaps an option C that Mr. Dalio doesn't mention above. To invent systems that are stronger, more just, to shift our understanding of what value is and how it will be transferred, to reimagine what governance means in a global and digital context. Today's guest lives on the vanguard of these communities, currency and governance design. Through her work and life, she forwards possibilities of a more liberated future that helps leaders bring their audacious visions to life. Today, I'm excited to join Grace Rahmani of Dow Leadership. We met in uh, Lithuania about two and a half years ago, and I've been tracking your work and really interested in the types of problems that you're, you're working on parsing out. So for my listeners, can you start off by explaining what problems you've been working on solving? Everything. And when I say that, what I mean is I'm a systems thinker. So I'm looking at what is the fundamental source or what is it that's the cause? of some of these systemic problems that we have. One of the biggest issues that we actually have is that we're, most people aren't trained as system thinkers. It's not a natural way to think. We see our world and our perspective, and it's hard to take that step back. Our educational systems certainly don't look at that. So we don't have the training to look back and say, wait a second, what is the root of this? And I've been looking at what the root of many of the problems, whether it's environment, government, the pandemic, everything, and to me, there's two fundamental things that are going on that are mechanisms, mechanism design problems. And one is the mechanism called money, and the other is the mechanism called centralized government. And you could go into the spiritual, and there's certainly, I do believe that there's also a spiritual transformation for people to make and a communications upgrade for people to make. 
but there also are built-in systems that cause us to behave in certain ways. And so I've been trying to look at this through the lens of money and governance. So go governance is just another word for decision-making. How do we make decisions as a group? And how could we change the mechanisms of those decision-making things? And how could we change the mechanism of how money works so that we don't end up in this constant race to the bottom? And so before we get into uh, kind of exploring these different mechanisms, why are you so passionate about this? Because I'm old. Um, so I've had, I've had a good career in technology. I've worked in technology for 30 years. I raised my children. Um, and then you start to look at, okay, well, how has the world not gotten better? Um, I'm one of the first generations of Americans that's less well off. My, my generation is less well off than their parents. Really strange. And what am I passing on to my kids? And also when I say because I'm old, because I don't have the need for status or moving up in my career or safety in going, you know, say, being careful about what I say so that I can make somebody happy. So I think that my age has a lot to do with it. I'm able to step back and say, okay, well, I've kind of done the thing that was, you know, have the kids, have the family, have the company car. And I'm like, all right, well, what's next? And what are the next 30 or 40 years of my life going to be about? And so helping folks define and reinvent currencies and governance systems, is it to help us begin going down this road? Um, you put my head on swivel last week when you sent me a bunch of information about kind of the history of currency and values. So can you try to quickly go into what is currency and what gives currency value? Okay, so the first thing is this weird thing about value, right? Money and currency aren't the same. Money is something that we use to as a transaction between us, and it is supposed to represent value. But if you think about what you really value in life, um, and I'm just pausing as our listeners think, oh, what do I really value in life? The things that will come into your head generally will not be something you could purchase. Air, my friendships, my time, those are not purchasable items. And so then you think, okay, so why do we keep saying money is a store of value when the things that I value are not represented by money? In fact, money is anti-value. So I would say money is and, and that's kind of a weird thing to say, but if you think about it, money, the way that we value, value air, we call that an externality. So we're gonna dig up some mountain or cut down some trees and the damage to our air quality, that's an externality. And so we are doing something for profit that is damaging air, which is, I don't know how it got external because I got some in my lungs right now. <laughs> that is not an externality to me. Another thing about money that is anti-value is that um, if I send you an invoice after you interviewed me, it's a very different relationship than if I'm doing this just because I'm on a podcast, you're on a podcast, or if you send me an invoice and you say, hey, listen, to be on the podcast, I'm going to charge you per view. Those are very, that would, that would have a very different type of relationship than, hey, we like each other, let's have a conversation. Um, I mean, the more extreme would be like if you paid your mom when she made dinner for you. So in some ways, money is anti-relationship. When I pay you for a cup of coffee, it means uh, you're a barista. 
I don't have to be that nice to you. I mean, it shouldn't be a jerk, but I don't have to be nice to you. And if I don't like your coffee, you're replaceable. That's what it means if I pay you for a cup of coffee. If you just get me a cup of coffee and we sit down, then we're friends. So money is anti-relationship. And it's not unintentionally anti-relationship because in order to have an economy that grows, you need to, in some ways, take things that we used to get for free, like babysitting from our parents or our neighbors or the community, and make people pay for daycare. So if you look at one of the big top people in, in, in your part of the world around after-school care, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's really big into provision of after-school care for kids because he says when he grew up in Austria, there was always some grown-up around. And he grew up very, very poor. There wasn't money, but there was always adults to take care of the kids. You were running around outside doing your thing in this poor place, but there was always an adult supervision. And so he's quite aware of this valuable thing that we've turned into something that you have to have enough money for, but actually the poorest people on earth have no lack of care after school care for children. So it's, it's, so there's this kind of anti-value thing about money. And, and like I said, it's not unintentional. It's connected to our need for growth. And then currency, you could say is, Money is a subset of currency. So a currency could be anything that flows that you want to see the flow of it. And so you could see the flow. There's actually some really great stuff on uh, ecosystem value, but you could say that my reputation is a currency. So if I have a ranking as a sports person or a ranking as a, a person playing a game, I have a reputation in a game, or if you're a Dungeons and Dragons character, I have a reputation in my industry. We, we don't want, quite have numbers for that yet, but you could rank those kinds of things. You could rank systems health. If somebody gives you um, some tests about your body, there would be a number of different tests showing different numbers, which are a, a sign of the flow. And if you looked at those numbers over time, oh, my cholesterol went up, my cholesterol went down, my, you know, whatever it is, my blood pressure, all those things would measure system health. And that's what we're missing when we think about currency today. We're not measuring the system health of a uh, society. We're not measuring the system health of a jungle or of our planet. And we do have measures of the system health, but they're not built into our transactions. And so the currency model that most folks are familiar with is this fiat system that we currently have. I give you $10, you give me back two fives we're exchanging currency and value. But over the last 10 years, it's been a, a large increase in alternative currencies um, coming online, being experimented with. And why do you think that while we've had this fiat system for thousands of years, that alternative currency experiments are kind of mushrooming right now in this moment? So first of all, I wouldn't say it's thousands of years. It's more like hundreds of years. And there is a lie that's being told, by the way, about that. I mean, it's not unintentional that we have this thought that it's been this way always. Because a few hundred years is a long time for us as human beings. Nobody we know remembers before then. Um, but before then, people, like I said, you just helped your neighbor. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger remembers a time, and he's not that much older than I am, uh, where people just helped each other out. And if you had some apples, you shared it. And if you had some time after, you know, in the afternoon, you helped other people's kids. And that was just how it was. Um, so people didn't use barter systems in those societies. They very distinctly did not use barter systems. They just helped each other out. 
And the only times they used transactional money was for anything that their environment didn't give them. So that so there's a little bit of a lie being told to us about, oh, people used to use barter systems. No, you only use barter if your society doesn't provide that to you. Children don't use barter systems. Their kids, their parents just give them food and shelter. <laughs> and that's how primitive societies, or not so primitive, maybe future societies, right? The Star Trek world that we talk about. So that's, um, so why do I think that cryptocurrency is gaining? Because people recognize, everybody recognizes, if you're in the middle class, like what I was speaking about, not having as good a financial future as your parents is a shock. It's, a, it's, it's the breaking of the social contract. If you are an American, the American dream is anybody can make it in America. Um, we know that anybody could be president. That's been proven now, anybody. But, <laughs> but the breaking of the social contract is I won't have a future and I can't make a living for my family. We obey our governments to some degree because there's a social contract that I'm gonna have um, you know, the freedom to at least be able to make a living. And that's becoming less and less true in much of the world. And so that breaking of the social contract and people are thinking about, okay, what could be a new form of money? Now the, the digital currencies that there are now are not, uh, most of them are not currencies that are different than money. And most of them have exacerbated the problems of money. So actually they've accelerated, it's really interesting. One of the problems with money is that we are in an interest-based system which means that the way that money is produced is by loans. So you would think, we keep saying, oh, the government's printing money. Weirdly, the governments aren't printing money now. The governments are taking out loans from banks, from other governments, from bonds. They're taking out loans. They're not actually printing money. So that if they're printing 100 tokens, euros, dollars, whatever that is, now they owe 110. If they were just printing money, it would be less bad, but we're actually in this debt-based system. Now, and, and the debt-based system means that in order to pay it back, you're always speculating on, it's a very speculation system. You're speculating on stocks, you're speculating on investments, there's all this speculation, and our entire financial industry is based on speculation. Is, are people gonna pay back their loan or not? And then should I buy this, right, this uh, financial instrument? financial instrument. And to be able to pay back the interest on that loan is predicated on growth. Yep. And as I said before, and you can see this, this is, uh, you can see this in sacred economics, Charles Eisenstein talks about this. But um, basically, in order to create growth, we have to kind of take things away from people that they used to get for free and make them pay for it. And so outside of the, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger anecdote, where else are we seeing examples of more sustainable currency designs, currency systems? So we, we're, okay, so I just want to go back to the, the cryptocurrency. So, so people, the previous question was, so people have been disillusioned with that, and they're also disillusioned with the idea and the knowledge that the government can take your money away from you. The government, the banks, when you know run on banks or all kinds of history you can look at historical incidents and people invented bitcoin as a store of value that the government could never seize and so that's that's kind of the background of that and there's no debt associated with bitcoin so 
whatever Bitcoin's value is, you don't have to pay interest on it. Now, people are changing that and making it into a debt-based thing, and we can lend each other in speculative, and so that it fluctuates more than regular currencies, and it's also more destructive to the environment than regular currencies. So in some ways, it's exacerbated the problem. But in some ways, it's very interesting. There's no debt associated with money, and that's already a huge breakthrough. And, and a really big shift. Okay, we don't need to have debt to make money. It, we could just produce it out of thin air. That's kind of better than we, we owe more than we created. Right. And nobody can take it away from us. That's kind of better. And then the government could close our bank accounts, cause hyperinflation, all kinds of things. With Bitcoin, there's some other level of control. So those are improvements. They're not the whole story, but they are a step forward. Right now, we aren't seeing quite yet great models, but we are seeing at least the starts of sharing economies. And you can look at the P2P Foundation and uh, Michelle Bowen's work um, in researching a lot of these things. He's actually put out a really, it was in 2019, a really great report looking at many of these alternative accounting systems. And alternative accounting systems say, you've also got B Corps, right? Triple mm -hmm. bottom line companies in the United States they're still dependent on profitability because without that, you can't have a company, but it is a way of measuring more than one type of currency, more than one type of current, more than one type of accounting system when you look at the health of your ecosystem. So that's been quite successful. And we've seen that these B Corps have done very well. So that's actually a, quite a successful experiment um, that's been working well um, for companies. We're also seeing the growth of commons in many places in Europe. So, in, for example, one of the examples he points out, there's these urban commons. So people cooperatives. So we've got in the United States, you've got a lot of food co-ops. Um, the Brooklyn co-op is an example that you have of people co-owning a food shop in this case and working with the farms and is participation in, for example, the Brooklyn Co-op, what you need to do is you need to have a membership and your membership includes a membership fee, but also a certain number of weekly hours. I don't think it's many, it's two or four or something like that. And you can't substitute that out. You could skip a week if you're on vacation or whatever and make it up later, but you can't not be a part of this. And so that's a kind of a time obligation to being part of a community and it's rebuilding community into this. And then as a result of everybody giving two hours a week, all of our groceries are a little cheaper. So we're, we're, we're making that better. And we have a better shop and it's a really good shop because everybody cares about it. And we have a community and we take care of each other around food. Um, time banks like the Helsinki Time Bank has been around for 10 years. And time banks are super interesting. So the time bank says an hour is an hour. And whatever you do for an hour, that's an hour. And if you're 13 and you babysat, that's fine. Your parents have to approve you being in a time bank. But if you babysat for an hour and now you want to get dental work done, it's an hour, an hour is an hour. And so time banks are a new form of exchange. And again, it builds community because only people who are inside of that can exchange an hour with one another. Um, so those are the kinds of things that are starting to work. There's also a number of different accounting systems. So there's a group, I can't remember what they were called, in Austria that came out of Austria. I'll, I'll send you the link and we can put it in the notes. Yeah. But, and it's definitely in the notes I sent you. Um, 
where they identified 17, I think it was either 15 or 17 different areas where you should be um, focusing as a company. And those include social inclusion, equality, um, contributing back to the community, not polluting the environment. Um, there are a whole bunch of 17 of these different measures that they proposed Again, I think it was about eight years ago, and a number of companies have ascribed to this, and they're um, basing themselves on the constitutions of Europe, which, you know, profitability isn't about it. Doing social good is part of the constitution, like making a better society. And what the, the fundamental question underneath that particular thing, or any of these triple bottom lines, is if you were going to build an economy, what would the purpose be? Why do we have an economy? Because our current, if you go to, if you go to an economics school and they teach you economics, they, they tell you that the purpose of an economy is to grow. We could do better than that. That's kind of a silly, a silly goal. Let's grow. Why, why? What, why is that our goal? And why do you think it's a silly goal when we've got a, a burgeoning population? who needs food and the same resources that we've all been privileged to enjoy? Why, well, why yeah. is growth so, so silly? This is, so, this is, so this is an interesting question, right? That's a great question. So the reason that we need to grow is we're being told that that's the reason we need to grow. But we're, the reason we need to grow is because we have debt. <laughs> that's the real reason. Just growing isn't enough. And we can see over the many, many years that we've had the current systems of economics, that growth does not indicate better happiness, does not indicate better health, does not indicate better quality, equality among people. It does not indicate better environmental, better air. It doesn't. Growth doesn't equate any of our actual human values. It's just an idea. And again, like I said, growth can be caused by actually being able to produce more stuff. And then you have to ask, what stuff are you producing? So if you're producing more stuff that you need, that's really great, right? Growing enough food for everybody is important. But if you're just growing more stuff, making more stuff, then you're just polluting the environment more and making people want to buy more stuff so that they can grow the economy because you got to have more stuff. Like that doesn't seem like a very worthwhile goal. So just growth alone is not enough to make any sense whatsoever. But if you said, look, our goal of the economy is to make sure everybody has food and health. That doesn't have the word growth in it. Why is that? Because it's a different goal. It's not, there isn't necessarily dependency one on the other. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say we can, it's a little bit silly to say growth. And then because the assumption is more growth, more for everybody. But right. the truth is more what, right? More what? only more of what you're measuring and does it get distributed better? So far, not. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation to have in the context of being in quarantine where the, the needs are, are really shifted and the, I've spent such less money in the last two months because I'm not going out. My quality of life has changed, but it's not dra drastically worse off because I'm not able to patron the restaurants, to go shopping, to fill up my gas tank. My usage is just through the floor. 
my quality of life is a bit reduced because the, the lack of social interaction. But like you said at the beginning of the conversation, it's the relational value that I feel I'm really missing out on right at this point. Anything I want, buy. I can get off Amazon yeah. or the grocery store. Exactly. So the thing that we're lacking now is the thing we can't buy, which yeah. is that interaction with human beings. Yeah. And so it's very interesting, right? So, so I'm going to sneeze. Sorry. They usually come in threes, so I may have another one coming. Um, yeah, so it, and it really is, there's this huge inequality. And so, so you could go to universal basic income, right? And people are talking about that. And it's very weird. You've got kind of, even the very right wing politicians are talking about UBI now, like, wow, we're like in, you know, like Twilight Zone world, what the hell is going on here, right? But the Republican <laughs> president just sent me $1,200 for doing nothing. Yeah, so, um, but it, well, he did send you that money so that uh, in return for taking away some of your civil liberties, but that's a totally different conversation, okay? And that when we see that all over the world, and people here talk about it quite openly, yeah, but it's only so much they can take away and only so much they can give and we want our separate liberties back. I happen to live in a region where the uh, incidence is extremely low, the mortality is fairly low, and people aren't, aren't worried so much. So there's, it's kind of a, a different situation from some other places. Um, but so if we go back to UBI, the thing is UBI is money and then people have to spend their money. But in much of the world, um, there are, is basic healthcare provided. So if you have basic healthcare provided, what if you had basic food provided and basic shelter provided? It is quite possible that there would be certain uh, supermarkets you go to and it would be free or local produce would be free. And there would just be certain products you could buy if you wanted specialty food or whatever, maybe you have to pay money, but it could be just like basic health care is provided that basic food would be provided instead of basic income. And then money wouldn't be so much of a factor. And that's what I, what I was saying before. There were these societies where people would provide stuff for one another and just not let each other starve. And if you needed medicine, you'd go to the medicine man or the medicine woman, and they would do whatever they did or get the plants from the forest and take care of you. And there wasn't like there wasn't a charge for that. And you might give them a gift back. And, and we think of that as money. Well, you paid them, but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. I gave them a duck because they helped me and I gave them a duck and I had a duck. But if I didn't have a whole duck, I could maybe just give them some eggs because I was poorer. And it's very gift oriented. There's not this number attached to the service the medicine woman gave me because that's not how our society functions. And yeah, we could have that again if food was, and basically food and health were provided to everybody. But this is all relying upon some sort of implicit or explicit governance structure that's in there's, place. Yes. Right? Well, yes, there's always governance in place. And traditionally we've done that through religion. So I belong to a very funny religion um, where it's a distributed autonomous organization religion where it's completely distributed we don't have a pope i'm a jew right we don't have a pope uh we don't have one religious authority and through this set of we have a we have a code of law which is 613 rules and then there's interpretations of those rules and then there are individuals who can interpret it but 
despite this weird situation, this particular religion has stepped in and done things like that. So for example, um, when there was a crisis with, in Russia with the Russian Jews, the American Jews and the German Jews and whatever, we tried to pull them out. And we put in money as an organization to help our fellows get out. So you don't necessarily need the same kind of governance structure that we're thinking about in order to help the needy. And we're seeing that a lot today, right? Yeah. People are making apps and saying, how do I help the old lady down the street? And how do I, whatever it is, we can see that that's the natural order of things. The natural order of things, we don't want people to die on the street. We don't want people to die of hunger. We don't want people to be unhealthy. We want to help. And the, the current day and age, we've got most often when we're thinking of governance, we're thinking in terms of nation states and countries. And I think um, given all the, the digital tools that we have access to now, we're seeing some interesting experiments going on in Estonia with the delivery of government through digital services. And maybe a less shining example would be China. Um, but can you spell out a little bit more about the connection between governance and currency design? Okay. So it's interesting because these are all imaginary things, aren't they? Who we think govern us is Im imaginary. So I just mentioned a, a religion, and if you're a religious Jew, that governance rules you no matter what country you're in, right? And if you're mm -hmm. a Christian, same thing. If you belong to a religion, you have a governance system that has rules that you obey in addition to this nation state thing. And if you belong to a community, we belong to the crypto community, there's certain ways that we talk to each other. There's certain ways that we interact with each other, um, you know, hosting each other on each other's podcasts, whatever it is, right? Sharing each other's Twitter stuff. We have behaviors that are dictated by the governance system, and some of it is community norms, mm -hmm. right? So we already belong to multiple things. Nation state is pretty new. Nation state is, you know, a couple hundred years old. It's not a very old idea. So that's that's one thing to get in the... In the course of human history, nation state is pretty new. And so it could fragment again, or it could become a bigger thing. I like to think of the point that we're at as an evolution rather than, it, it, rather than anything else. And what that means is that we organize into more and more complex beings. That's just evolution is from the simple to the complex. And so humans worked in families, then tribes, then city-states, nation-states. The next thing might be humanity, and that would be appropriate because the problems that are facing us are facing us as humanity. So the, the, the COVID virus is not facing us as a nation-state. Right. It is facing us as a planet. And so now we need organizational systems. And like you said, we now have currencies that are international. Bitcoin and Ethereum and whatever you want to call them, all of these cryptocurrencies know no boundaries. That's profound because as human beings, we kind of know no boundaries as well. I'm in a different continent than you are and we met each other somewhere else. And as human being, if children, young people play these games, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're a young person, people play games and you don't know, somebody's just a blue monster and you're the red monster, you don't know whether, and you're exchanging currency in these in-games. So we've become in many ways more international and then psychologically that's very difficult so people are are also getting more local because they need that relationship and that sense of belonging 
And sometimes that goes into extremism and other ways of feeling like I'm not alone in the world. I have a bunch of extremist people or religious people who believe the same things. And sometimes that is an intellectual community or something, something else. So I think that our mobile devices and our technology will allow us to have these senses of governance and belonging where they belong. And what do I mean by that? There's some entities that have to be local, right? The, our firefighters and our healthcare systems must be local. And actually our food must be local. Our supply chains have gotten a little bit too remote, um, but the food itself, no matter where the supply chain is, has to be here. But our education could be anywhere. Um, and our sense of belonging could be with any community. Our sports has to be here, it has to be local. And then you have things that are local, but not bounded in the same way that we used to bond them. So a river. Rivers sometimes divide between countries, um, but then they, even if they divide between countries, there's two countries that have an interest in that river. So you might be able to create a governance system with your mobile phone where anybody who has can prove by geolocation that within the last six months, you know, six months, they've lived within proximity of that river at least 50% of the time, they belong to that governing body. And everybody might, might not participate in it, but the people who live close enough to the river who care about it, they'll be on the council. And they'll be have a proof that they belong to that body of interest. And somebody else who is an expert in rivers will have this proof that they're an expert in that. And so you could have governing bodies that are much more, well, fluid. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, uh, that you belong to what is appropriate for that particular decision-making system. That's how our bodies work. That's how natural systems work. Our, our, you know, our, our, our lungs don't decide what to digest. And then there's controllers around our body that decide something about it. And so the decisions are made in the parts that need to make the decision. Sometimes they're for all of the body and sometimes they're for a piece of the body. And that would be an appropriate way of thinking about governance systems, that you get governed by the appropriate thing according to the decision. So, so can you help root this in a a current uh, example or experiment at either the nation level, the organization level? Well, I think that the, the thing that you're seeing right now is people creating um, uh, communes, what used to be called communes before that was a bad word, permaculture, um, you know, self-sustainable farms, um, you know, going off the grid. So you're seeing people try to create their own ecosystems that actually function as an ecosystem body. Um, and that could be, again, larger cooperatives, urban cooperatives, larger um, communities creating. I don't think there's any huge ones, but there's a few larger communities with a few hundred people housing cooperatives. And so what we're mostly seeing is people trying to break out of the current system and when you do that, what you need is, is independence from the system. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these agricultural models, because if you don't have your own food and water, you're going to need money. Um, this is also one of the downfalls that I say about cryptocurrency. I'm quite open about that, 
if Ethereum Foundation, when they raised money, had just bought a bunch of farms and told any programmer, look, if you want to be a Solidity programmer, you can come live on these farms. You'll owe 10 hours a week to the farm and we'll have some permaculture experts. And that's what we're doing with our money. And if you're an engineer, come build some solar panels and you know, hopefully some of you are married to doctors and we'll have our own thing. Then Ethereum would be a sustainable currency with no dependencies on the outside world. Hmm. Of course, the US would send in its troops, but if you were distributed enough and not looking too threatening, that could happen. But as long as you don't have that, you will be dependent on money because as I said, your government, right? The definition of government is, is the people that are, have the monopoly on force. So if you have a monopoly on force, you have a monopoly on whether money counts as money or not. And you see the SEC doing that all the time. Every week, there's something else that comes out against some other cryptocurrency because they have a monopoly on money and they have a monopoly on brute force, violence. And so what, what, what's, what is uh, supporting the, the implementation of more sustainable currency designs, more sustainable governance systems? What's helping this movement reach its potential? The pandemic, natural disasters, hmm. the breaking of the social contract. The pandemic is so perfect for, actually for governments to take a harder grip because you can't have social unrest. You can't get out there and protest. And so it came at a really great time because right before the pandemic, what were we seeing? We were seeing Barcelona, Santiago, Hong Kong. We were seeing everywhere, right? Yeah. At Paris, everywhere, people on the streets because the social contract is broken. And the pandemic was perfect for the control systems to come in, but it's not sustainable because we're not in a sustainable economy. And as people die, um, and they're gonna die from the pandemic, but mostly, Sorry. Mostly people are going to be dying from hunger. They're going to be dying from suicide, isolation, drug addiction. Domestic violence is still going to be small, but people are going to be losing their minds. Yeah. There's going to be a huge mental crisis and people are going to, and there's going to be where the supply chains break down, there's going to be hunger. We're just going to see mass death and that will bring in on, you know, a new society. That's not what I want to say, but that seems to be the truth. And I'm the faster that we as individuals bond ourselves to one another, help one another, give one another what we need, food, comfort, whatever that is, the faster we'll be able to create those systems. The less we're concerned about how much money we have, the faster we can bring those systems into being. As politics seems to mire, obfuscate, and blur our vision, I keep coming back to the people. I have dear friends on the far left and the far right, and so many in between. All of them educated, curious, caring, and kind, and yet they vote dramatically different. Well, most of them. Some don't even bother voting at all, but that's another point. My point is this. Contrary to what my friends on either side of the quote-unquote aisles post or point their blame at, we all agree that the outcomes our system is producing are unacceptable. The 
Inequities and inefficiencies that exist are ossified in how our current capitalist system operates. So to unwind the system, we must begin asking big questions about what we value, how we exchange value, how we share what we value, and how we regulate what we value by learning more about the history of currencies and governance. And leaning into experiments in these domains, we can begin to test and build more efficient, equitable, and anti-fragile systems. This is the only way that I see to get us out of the sixth cycle of partisanship, civic disengagement, mindsets of poverty, and absence of possibilities. Please check out Grace's course that she mentioned. You can find out more about her and the course if you go to daoleadership.com, that's daoleadership.com, or follow her on Twitter, at Rebecca Rahmani. The only way out is through. And we will get through this current, scary, unclear moment. But to make sure that we get out of it in a way that does not get us back to where we started, that place of quote-unquote normal, we need to begin envisioning what is possible. So continue to ask the big questions. Lean into the assumptions that you might have. Excavate the internal. And together we can create a more sane just an equitable future thanks for tuning in to the onward podcast it's your support it's your feedback it's your comments it's your suggestions that are really driving this show forth so if you've got any comments feedback questions suggestions connections you name it feel free to get at me at d W-E-I-N-Z-V-E-G at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Daniel Weinsweg, spelled the same way. If you're enjoying the show, give it a like on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Make a comment, share it with somebody you think could be inspired, turned on, informed by the conversations we have here. A little social engagement on this weird technology mainframe goes a long way. Before I go, I'd like to give a big shout out to my dear friend, Jay Lately. Jay Lately's music is the soundtrack to the Onward podcast. So if you dig the tunes that's behind the music, the, the intros, the transitions, that's all Jay Lately. Check him out on Spotify. He's been doing this work, following his heart, inspiring folks with his poetry, his words, and his passion for over 10 years. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in, and as always, onward and upward.